Okay, I'm sitting down here with Jeanette Wendell and her husband Marty. That's how you like to be referred to, right? As the yep. husband of Jeanette Wendell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dr. Martin Wendell and his wife Jeanette. But you're the you're the well-known one. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> In different worlds. Which one of you is more well-known? Depends which world you're talking In about. In missions, everybody knows Marty. In CBA. In the booksellers, everybody knows you. In the booksellers, yeah. everybody knows you. So you go to a book, a book convention, you're Jeanette's husband. I don't go to book conventions. <laughs> <laughs> Do you read books? I read some books. The last fiction book I read was probably Jeanette's, one of her books, at least three years ago. So I don't do a lot it's of fiction. Afghanistan type. Have you, have you read all of Jeanette's books? No. I read all the children's books, and then she got reading writing faster than I can read fiction. Uh, and I've read about one the first book every two. eighteen months is faster than he can read fiction. Is yep. it, so you're not a fiction writer reader? No. no. I joined the club. I'm not either. Yeah. That's something you and I have in common. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read any of your books, children's books included. But maybe we'll get to the book thing in just a second. So you guys are with or you are with what's your ministry? We're with Bible Centered Ministries. Um, located in located in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, just a few minutes from Lancaster Bible College. We are celebrating 75 years of ministry this year. You and your wife? Uh, no. No. The me, yes. Because you're not my, that old. Yes. No, me and my wife are celebrating 30 years of, of marriage this year, and but not 75. Now nah, she's only 29, so um, <laughs> 75 years of, of mission uh, ministry globally. We have a saying, the sun never sets on BCM ministry. We have global ministry. 779 missionaries as of three weeks ago, over five to 6,000 volunteers working in 50 to 65 different countries, depending on which projects are going, and living in 42 countries. We started 75 years ago with one lady doing a Bible club in Philadelphia. Her name was Bessie Traber, and it's grown since then. We originally started as the Bible club movement and specialized in teaching the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to children in a coherent visual way using flannel graph. And as the children grew up, the ministry grew up, and we started not only into Bible clubs but into camps. We have 25, uh, 35 camping programs around the world. We reach about 25,000 kids a year in camping programs. And we've got a Bible school or two, and we do church planting. We've planted approximately 16 to 17,000 churches. We reach, on an average, yearly we reach 1.2 to 1.3 million children with the gospel every year. Wow. So we've grown a bit. So now you haven't, uh, you haven't always been with BCM, so let's start back at the beginning with you guys on a personal level. How did you guys meet and get to know each other? You tell that story. Got to keep this capable. Yeah. <laughs> we will make no pink and blue sidewalk jokes. Okay. Oh, uh, we both. <laughs> okay, so pink and blue sidewalk. You guys obviously went to Prairie. Yes. <laughs> okay. You knew that. I knew that. Yeah, I went to Bible College in Canada. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, actually, uh, Marty and I are both missionary kids. Uh, I grew up in Colombia and Venezuela. My parents were team missionaries. Marty was a Bolivia MK. Uh, we both went to Prairie Bible College, and we uh, served together in the Spanish outreach ministry, and that's where we met, got married, 
uh, went into ministry. And what year did you get married in? 1981, June 13th. And you were how old? 22. 22. Well, then you left. 21. And then you left Prairie and went into ministry directly? Went in, or? Went directly into ministry. We did some youth pastoring while we were looking for a church. We youth pastored in um, Hot Springs, Montana at the Hot Springs Bible Church. And went from there to pastor in Riverton, Wyoming, at the Neighborhood Alliance Church. I was ordained in the Alliance there. And we were there until April of 1984, when we three went. Three years. Yeah, three years. Yeah. Where we went. And we'd always had missions on the spectrum, but we wanted home ministry experience before we went back to the mission field. So, so even when you, we you went into it, it was the mission field. Yes. Yeah. We knew it was mission field eventually. We just didn't, weren't sure of the, of the timetable. So in 1984, we joined the Gospel Missionary Union, which is now Avant, went to their candidate orientation, which then was six weeks or more. It was three months. Yeah, it was a long time in Kansas City. And then we did deputation after that for about nine months, nine months or so and went to Bolivia, South America, where we served for 17 years. With GMU. Or With Avant. GMU, which is now Avant, yeah. Okay. In 2000, we uh, our ministry with Avant had finished up there. So hold, hold on, back up. You, you, yes. uh, where'd you say you went? South America. Bolivia. South America, Bolivia. Bolivia. Yes. And Marty was field director for Gospel Missionary Union. Oh, okay. So that that was what you were doing in Bolivia. Yeah. Well, that's what I did for the last seven years. seven years there. Before that, I was involved in church development and field treasurer and anything else they wanted. So and did a lot of Bible conference teaching. Okay. Yeah. So how did you how did you know that you were called? How did God call you into ministry as a a missionary to go to a foreign country? Now avoid all the language like uh, God spoke to me, I heard the still small voice, I read the signs and read the palm leaves and tree leaves because I'll edit all of that out to make you sound theologically sound. Uh, he's he's yeah. spoken in a still small voice, but I'm deaf. <laughs> You, you always knew you'd be a missionary because no, your parents were No, I did not always knew I'd be a missionary. I didn't know I would. Actually, I did not want to be a missionary because I didn't want to do deputation. I didn't like the idea of a capable young man begging for money uh, at church to church. So you decided to become a pastor for three years. Well, I didn't want to be a pastor either. God, in my junior year Bible college, um, through Jim Elliott's autobiography in Ecuador, spoke to me, and then gave me a passage in Genesis 12 that said, I'm going to send you to people that make you a great blessing. I said, God, that's great. I'll do anything you want, except I won't be a young pastor, because all the young pastors I know are wusses, and I won't go to Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, you said I won't, and God said I will. Guess what the first stop was? It's Wyoming as Wyoming a as a young pastor. Yeah. And so were you a wimp? I was a wimp. Well, I <laughs> prefer to think I wasn't, but yeah. So Jeanette and I had always thought that we knew that we would eventually be involved in mission somehow. But we also knew that a young married couple like that with no home experience, all international experience, needed some background. So that's why we went into the pastorate. That's why we went with the Christian Missionary Alliance. We were with the IFC. I was a student IFCA member for years. And when I got ready to go uh, into the ministry, they weren't really interested in foreign missions. At that time, IFCA didn't have any foreign missions. Hmm. And so we looked for a church that had foreign missions and one that focused on missions, and the Christian Missionary Alliance did. 
and created an opportunity for me to pastor. So we pastored there, got ready to go to the mission field, and they didn't have any ministry in Bolivia. So we said, well, it can't be with the Alliance. And so we had background with people with Gospel Missionary Union, and we contacted them. That's how we ended up with Gospel Missionary Union in Bolivia. And you served there for 17 years? Until mm-hmm, 2000. And then you moved to um, where? From there, we accepted a call to work with a Latin American mission in Miami. They specialize in working with Latin American countries. There's 22 of those countries, and they are working in 14 of those countries. And since you're Latin American, it really and because it's Latin American, so it, <laughs> yeah. what it did is it expanded my fences from one country to all of Latin America and Spain. And Spain, yes. So I worked there, and actually, my job there was to help in the rebuild of that mission, who was a long standing organization that needed to restructure. So I helped retooling and rebuilding the mission. And we were there for five years. And during that time, God blessed in the mission and not only in the mission ministry, but he continued to bless in fields that we had, I at least expected was the full development of a, of a, uh, a ministry for Jeanette in the area of writing and mentoring of the writers. Hmm. So, the move to Miami actually created a lot of opportunities that we didn't expect in that realm because Miami, you can reach just about any place in Latin America in a matter of hours and other places where we did, where Jeanette did some of the writing seminars. We were there for five years from June of 2000, actually June 1st of 2000 when we started there and we ended December 31st of 2005. So we moved on December 31st, 2005, from Miami, Florida, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it was snowing. <laughs> the first day, January 1st, 2006, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I went outside. There was frost on the windshield. Jeanette and Ellie, our daughter, came outside. They looked around. They said, we're going back in. We'll be out when it's spring. <laughs> Bolivia, Miami, and then, then Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yes. Yes. And we've been there now. It'll be six years this January. We've been there. With Bible Center Ministries. With Bible Center Ministries, yes. Ministries. Yeah. The, uh, now, during all of this, since you got married, going to all these different locations, Bolivia, Miami, Wyoming, <laughs> and now Pennsylvania, you have kids during that period of time? Raising a family? A few. How many kids do you have? Um, we have four children, and the first was born in... 1982. Yeah, you're looking Christmas at your day. wife. Maybe she should yeah. take over from here. Christmas right Day, 1982. In Wyoming. In yes. Wyoming. And we moved to South America to... Is a boy or a girl? A boy. Michael. Michael. Yes. Michael. And where's he at and what's he doing now? He, last year, won the Bill Gates Public Service Law Scholarship for a full ride to law school. So he's at UW. Uh, in second, Just started his second year of law school. Uh, planning to go on overseas. Spent the summer in Mumbai uh, doing a... Uh, Mumbai, India, there, Mumbai, Mumbai, India. Yeah. So is he going to law school in hopes of using that in Christian ministry, or is he going to law yes, school? Yes, it's uh, the he has been since he got out of uh, he graduated from Seattle Pacific University, and in the process of paying back student loans so he could go on to further studies, uh, got involved in uh, uh, he'd done a lot of street kids ministry in in Bolivia, and got involved in working with uh, the homeless of inner city uh, Seattle. And then also undocumented minors and always planned to go back for a higher, like a Ph.D. And somewhere along the line, he realized that the, that social social justice law 
Uh, he was involved with the International Justice Mission, which is the Christian organization involved in social justice law, hmm. everything from human trafficking to the many different issues, um, that he was interested in law. And he, cer- he certainly didn't think he could pay for it, and uh, he was one of 10,000 applicants for the Bill Service, Bill Gates uh, Public, Public Service, Service Law Fox, Scholarship. Yes. Which so was it, his commitment, it was his commitment to social justice that earned him that scholarship? Yes. And, uh, yeah, there were two, 200 finalists, and uh, uh, unbelievably, you know, he, it, it was interesting that he felt that uh, the things that were a plus for him were the fact that he had worked with street kids, worked with the inner city, uh, had very high LSATs. And uh, when he got to the 200 finalists, you know, spending a weekend together with Bill Gates, uh, there wow. was among them a special ops major that was running the whole restructuring of law in Afghanistan. There was a, a finalist who had uh, who was running the, the AIDS program of an entire African country. And he thought, you know, he had very little Not a chance when he ended up with the committee, which was a totally non-Christian, very uh, liberal committee. To his surprise, the thing that they cited as the reason for giving him the scholarship above others was that he was the third generation of uh, American citizens who had been committed to serving others without any uh, personal gain. Well, we In would other call words, a missionary. He was third generation yeah. missionary. Wow, kid. missionary pastor. And so the thing that he thought would be would be a, a something a, that wasn't a plus of being a missionary yeah. kid, third generation, was what this very liberal group cited as the biggest reason for choosing him over the other 200 finalists. Wow. So is he married? No. No. Has a girlfriend. Who's also who's also in humanitarian and involved in social work. Done missions stuff, so in six different uh, countries of Asia and Africa. And okay. And the second child? Second child is Josh. Or Josh, for the people know him. Josh is living in Colorado doing secular work and living his life. And uh, we should mention, because uh, we have two of our children are adopted, so we adopted Josh uh, at birth um, in 1986, okay. June 12th. And so he's our second child. And then yes. Steve, our third son, uh, was born 10 months later, uh, much after, to our surprise. Yeah, after they told us we couldn't have kids. Yes. <laughs> ah. And then and so uh, Steve is... Uh, just finished advanced combat medicine training and is deploying with the 2nd uh, Marine Battalion. He's just finished his third year uh, with as a Navy medic and is actually uh, waiting his slot to go to medical school with he's the Navy. Petty Officer 2nd Class Navy. So. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's, he is enjoying the combat side of, it, of combat medicine. He just finished a four-month school in that. So Michael, Josh, Steve... And then Ellie is our daughter. She was yes. born. She's also adopted from Bolivia, and she was born. Just turned twenty in uh, September, nineteen ninety-one. Yeah, just turned twenty. Any of your kids married yet? No, no, no. Yeah. And uh, Ellie is working. Uh, finished a degree in a class in cosmetology. Got her state boards and is looking for long-term gainful employment <laughs> while she's working at Wendy's. Ah. And living at home for free. <laughs> well, free to somebody, right? Yes, yes. Which, yeah, I mean, that'll change hopefully sooner than later. But so anything here you would back know. after you uh, after you became a pastor in Wyoming, decided that God was going to send you to Bolivia. Yes. And then you started the deputation process. Is that when you got connected with Kootenai Community Church? 
I'm not sure when our first connection with Kootenai was. My connection with Kootenai came originally through the, the Kenny family. When I was a junior high kid, I attended a church plant in Hope, Idaho, and they were helping do that church plant. So that was my first connection with the Kenny family. And then by the time I got old enough to make my own decisions, they were no longer there. They were involved in, in the Kootenai church. And I think that was probably where my first connection came along with with Kootenai, because I had no other ties to Kootenai except for people that we knew along the way. Oh. And so it would have been John. Um, I actually knew, when I first knew, uh, I don't know if you call him Pastor John or what you call him. I just call him John. John. Yeah. I He was a helicopter pilot with uh, one of the local timber com- companies. And had retired from Air Force, I believe. And so. Oh, you're talking about Dave. Or Dave, excuse you're me. Dave, Dave, John, Dave, John yeah, the son. Yeah, no, it was through Dave, Dave the father. Right. That was, I didn't meet John the son as an adult until I came to Kootenai. Okay. So, yeah. That would have been 1984. Uh, this is one of the churches that. It would have been the first, yeah, our first tour of deputation would have been in 1984. And that's when we would have first come to the church here. Now, you know some of our other missionaries too, right? Is it the Belches or the Hunts? Belches. Belches. Dave uh, Belch graduated from my missionary kids school, Christensen Academy, when I was in second grade, came back as a staff member when I was in uh, my, a junior in high school. That's and then Lois Chug, who was yes. about five years older than I was, came back on staff the same year, graduated from Prairie Bible College. We got them together, and they... <laughs> conducted their entire courtship under the eyes of all of us MKs who were determined to marry them off to each other. I think I'd tell the story, but from a little bit of a different perspective, they had listened to that interview to yes, hear that. Take okay. it that one. That's yes. right. So now you're with BCM. Yes. And uh, this takes you all over the world, right? Yes. Okay. So before we get to your uh, worldwide traveling, because you've been in more nations than the UN, let's talk about your book and your writing. You were in Miami, and that opened up opportunities for you to be an author and a conference speaker, and to teach workshops on Christian writing? Uh, to expand it, I actually had written my uh, my first seven, eight books while we were still in Bolivia, my children's series. And it was actually from Bolivia that I first uh, began the, the mentoring and working with uh, Christian writers around the world. Um, but it greatly expanded uh, uh, coming to Miami. And uh, the two associations uh, with which I've worked extensively one is the Asociación Latinoamericana de Escritores Cristianos, which in English is just the, the Association of Latin American Christian Writers, and I was part of the founding of that. And then uh, Media Associates International, which is the global ministry um, of raising up Christian writers and publishers around the world, many you know top uh, Christian uh, uh, writers and publishers, like the head of Thomas Nelson, the head of uh, Tyndale and others, have been part of that ministry around the world. And uh, uh, I have probably taught, I think now on five continents. And uh, so typically we're, there's a lot of, of conferences and, and training around the world. But then in between, um, you're doing a lot of work individually with writers uh, through Internet where they're sending you the manuscripts. You're working with them, helping them hone their writing. And virtually everything can be done now by by. Uh, uh, internet or even Skype. Uh, and so I'm doing a lot of, con- I do a lot of consulting 
and working with the writers individually and then teaching uh, global. And what has come out of that has been the development of Spanish language Christian fiction. And so I've been part of, of the raising up of that. And so because of that uh, outlet, I'm also now the, the fiction editor uh, for Thomas Nelson's Spanish language Christian uh, fiction line. Well, so you not only do so, prolific writing yourself, you are involved in mentoring other writers. Yes. And I guess I forgot about the writing itself. You know, in between everything else, I also run the communications department with BCM magazine, you know, all, all of the, the needs of communication. And when I have time, um, I occasionally pop out another political suspense novel for Tyndale. <laughs> Far fewer than they would like, but... So you've written how many books total so far? Sixteen. Sixteen books. So can you give us the title of each one and a three or four word summary? No. That summarizes plot twists and... <laughs> but if you go to my website, JeanetteWindle.com, you will see them all listed. <laughs> so how many children's books? There's actually uh, eight children's books. There's the six books of the Parker Twins Adventure Series. And then uh, a teen novel, and then, of course, my very first book, which was just stories of growing up at the MK School, you know, Christensen Academy, Kathy and the Redhead. Did and you then, tell the story of Dave and Lois Belch on that? Uh, no, because this, but they were in disguise in the book. Uh, names and, and, and names and let me tell places you, changed to protect the guilty. Yeah, let me tell you, Dave and Lois may tell the story, but you can talk to every MK that was in high school then, and they will tell the story I tell. <laughs> <laughs> so... Like the time we, we got the two of them in the walk-in freezer, <laughs> serenaded them with their... Uh, yeah, we have some great stories of uh, helping their courtship along. Okay, so you have so, children's books and a children's book series, but then you started publishing then adult I, yeah, political Clancy, action. Yeah, the Tom Clancy size. You published with Tom Clancy? No, Tom Clancy genre size oh, books, okay, yeah. Crossfire, Firestorm, the DMZ, and these are all political suspense novels set in an international setting. Uh, always places that we've been and, and worked with. Colombia, Bolivia, yeah, places. Yeah, Colombia, Bolivia. Af- the the two new books, um, Afghanistan. Uh, so you're you're growing up in the mission field in in those Latin American countries. Made you uniquely qualified with your background, your connections to write very believable, intense, yeah, political action thrillers. Yes, and but with a solid uh, Bible message in each one. Good, and so you've got three set in. Africa, or sorry, not Africa, South America. Yes, uh, Bolivia, uh, well, actually four, uh, Bolivia, uh, Colombia, and the guerrilla zones of Colombia and the Islamic fundamentalist connections, the tri-frontier area, and actually the connections to the U.S. nuclear industry, and then Betrayed, uh, which is set in Guatemala in Central America in the context of the uh, 50 years of American involvement in the military dictatorships there, and then the, the late, most recent two, uh, Veiled Freedom and Freedom Stand, set in Afghanistan, contemporary Afghanistan, and they are the ones who have uh, actually been nominated for uh, several awards within the CBA. So you have you you had uh, the connections in, did you say it's Columbia, the Islamic fundamentalist yes. movement there. Read the DMZ. Islamic in South America. Yes. So was there a crossover there between those books and the the ones that set in Afghanistan? Actually, surprisingly, yes, because when everything happened in Afghanistan, uh, there were people we knew both on the ground, you know, DEA, special ops, etc., um, in both Bolivia and Colombia, who were m- among the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan. Hmm. And so it was interesting to and to watch the parallels with the growing you know drug traffic and everything that's happened uh there's always connections so how many adult fiction thrillers 
I have uh, six out, and then uh, I'm finishing the seventh. And the seventh is set? Set in the Congo. Congo. You have a backup to that one planned in the Congo? No, this will be a... Standalone? Standalone, wrap it up. And when will that come out? Yeah. Hopefully within 12 months of it being turned in finished. <laughs> so about a year from now. A yeah, probably about a year. She gave you a date on that. That would be a sellable as an insider piece of news. Ah. If I gave you a date on it, my publisher wouldn't be very happy since they're the ones who decide the publishing date and it's constantly changing. Right. <laughs> so if you told me that to kill me. Yes. <laughs> No, you'd Slowly. have to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly? <laughs> like you learned in Colombia? Yes. Yeah. I would be the one in trouble. <laughs> so, um, uh, now your, your contacts or your experience in the mission field yes. plays in a little bit with her international political action thrillers. They did at the beginning. She's gone far beyond that now. Yeah. Um, I remember the first, in the first years when she started writing her children's books. She'd come and ask me about this and that, but the stuff that's in there now is is uh, way beyond the kind of things that I have had experience with, except for the travel to the fields. We do both travel a lot to the fields. Yeah. He's now, I've passed 30 countries. He's now passed at least 50. So I don't know how many there are. I've counted. We've definitely uh, been in far more countries since moving to Lancaster, PA, than in all of the years before. Wow. So I went, you know, Bolivia to Miami, one to 22 countries to the world. 50 plus on five continents. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know what the next stop would be. So after the book on the Congo, what are your writing plans? Give us some idea of what, what you would love to, <laughs> you would love to write about. Anything you can share? She can't share that? Um, I have three political suspense novels bubbling in the background of which the, the actual plot line is finished for Tyndale. And then I have a, a biblical sci-fi uh, trilogy that's also bubbling. And that is all you're going to get out of me. So six, six <laughs> books. Six books. Yeah. If right. I which times 18 enough. months means yeah. she's got... <laughs> She's still going to write. She's still going to write. Writing, she's yes. still going to write more than you'll ever read, won't she? That is exactly right. <laughs> what type of books do you like to read? Um, well, I read basically what I call it don't, shop books. Don't tell me Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and. I won't tell you that. Though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I usually read books, uh, how-to books, uh, true to life books, how-to theology books. Fix your toilet. What type of how-to? Um, books you're well, reading? I know how to do that, but uh, how-to books, for instance. Um, hunting and fishing. I always think I like to do that. I haven't done it for years, but so I'll read that. A book on how to fix a computer or Patrick how to repair McManus. this. Or, uh, um, you like theology stuff? I read some theology stuff. I've committed Missions myself. Leadership. What's that? You read a lot of I read a lot of leadership, leadership books like by Peter Drucker and those kind of people. Okay, so not your stuff necessarily restricted to the Christian market. Actually, I'm a firm believer in cross-pollination, and I think that we can, by cross-pollinating the disciplines, we can strengthen the Christian world. So Drucker, he was staunch Roman Catholic, but he wrote management books. I'm reading some books now on the uh, S-curve of organizational business that demonstrates how business grows and plateaus and when to jump off the curve and that kind of a thing. And I'm trying to tie that into missions. Uh, 
I've got a whole big list of books I want to do. <clears throat> I've told myself I want to go back and relearn French. I don't know that that'll ever happen. But after living in Canada for a couple of years and having two years of French, I think <laughs> I got to do that before I go do anything else. But you knew Spanish. You know Spanish, right? I do know Spanish, yeah. I preach in Spanish and English. And I get in trouble in a little French, a little German, <laughs> a little... <laughs> so you're... you're you're the president of BCM. Yes. That involves traveling around the country. How often do you travel? Where? What type of places do you travel to? Uh, I've been, within the first three months this year, I was on five continents. I probably traveled between 100 and 135 or 40,000 miles this year. Uh, air, air miles, not counting the overland miles. That would be Asia, Africa, Europe, Eastern Europe, North America, South America, now, while you're there, what does your job entail? What does your ministry uh, It do? depends on the job. For instance, when I was in Asia a couple of times, a lot of what I do, I'm an adjunct member of every board we own. So I'm supposed to be at all the board meetings. I don't go to all of them. but So I do board meetings. I do meetings where they're trying to find new leadership. When I went to Asia a couple of times, it was to deal with a strong persecution issue in the church. I go to Open New Works. We just uh, opened a new ministry of a camp in Ireland. So we're looking for personnel for a brand new camp in Ireland. Uh, it it vary, varies quite a bit. But it, it has to do with leadership. The idea is to make sure we stay focused on our purpose and we enable the missionaries to do what they're supposed to do to meet that purpose. 95 to 98% of all my missionaries are birth nation missionaries, which means they work in the nation of their birth, and that creates a different set of management issues as compared to strictly expats that leave North America and go overseas. Hmm. So we do have expat, expatriate missionaries as well, and we're looking for more. You find the mission field is too many, too many missionaries, too many ministries, or not enough? We have 7 billion people. One-third of those are children. Eight out of every ten people that ever accepts Christ does it as a child. Even if you create a one missionary for every half a million people, we still wouldn't have enough missionaries, and we're not even close to that. So, no, there's, there's still plenty of work to be done. How it's done will vary from country to country. The only non-negotiable that I can think of is the gospel message. There is no negotiation on that. Mm -hmm. But everything else is negotiable. Now, you work with people, obviously, in different countries. Yes. But, all, but at the same time, you're working with churches in those countries, some of whom are in countries that are not, not persecuted, That's open true. countries. Mm -hmm. And you're also working, and you can't, obviously can't share all the details, but in countries that are more close to the gospel, where your work is a very under-the-radar, underground... We call that creative access countries, yes. Creative access countries, yes. Wow, you ought, to be a, you ought to be a press secretary for the White House with that type of language. <laughs> creative access, so these are persecuted countries? Yes. And when you go into those countries, your job is to strengthen the local church, equip the local church, provide resources for the local church? What do you, what do you do? Usually when I go to a creative access country, I have very little interface directly with the national church. It, it's... There's expo exposure to liability by those people if they are exposed to me. I usually meet with leaders in those countries, and we talk about um, things they need to do in the ministry. Now, you were sharing with me just a, a minute ago about a recent trip that you made where you were monitored pretty heavily. Yes. Talk, and that was a creative access country? It was a creative access country, yes. So tell us about, can you tell um, me a little bit about that? 
Yes, we were actually on a European tour, or an Asian tour. There was four people with me, um, two executives from my mission, another person who is uh, a staff person. And we were traveling in several creative access countries. And we left one country, and on leaving the country, I think we drew what we call an undercover tale. We drew uh, somebody from immigration or their in-house police recognized us and advised the people of the country where we were going that we were on our way. When we got to the other country and we made uh, we made a side trip through Singapore, so it wasn't even a direct flight. So when we arrived at the second creative access country, we split up to clear immigration because if you're a group, you're identifiable. So we a group of North American white males. Yes. Well, huh. no, it was only three white males and one Indian. Okay. Yes, but we we split up to clear immigration in four different venues so that they wouldn't see us. And the first guy hit immigration, and the immigration officer said, "You are," without seeing his passport, he said, "You are so and so." You are traveling from such and such a place, and there's four people in your group. Where are the other four? Other three. Other three. Other three. So you had to pick the other three out of it. We were scattered in a room of immigration people. We were clearing immigration with probably 500 other people. Wow. And to pick us out of that group. We got out of the room, went to... They were waiting for you to get there. They were waiting. They knew we were coming. They knew what our names were. They knew where we were going. They knew where we were going to stay when we got to that country. So when you, when you go into a country like that, you, you got the tail. How do you even have any kind of effective ministry with people whose lives are hanging in the balance if they find out that you're meeting with them? Well, some of the people are already publicly recognized in ministry. The and, leaders in the country. Yes, some of the leaders. And so we could meet with them. They would come. And in that particular country, the host of the place that we stayed very graciously, quote unquote, offered us a place to meet with all of our people at his hotel. And if we wanted to travel around the city, he would offer us his transportation for travel. And then he was reporting back to someone. So we met with some of them at the hotel. But whenever we wanted to meet someone we didn't want him to know about, we would step into the street and catch a random cab in the street before he could catch up to us with his transportation. Wow. And then you'd lose him and then come back. Is there danger to your life in those situations? It's minimal. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of risk always. Um, my executive vice president is under a lot more risk. He's been shot a couple times. He's been beaten various occasions. About uh, 18 months ago, he was attacked when he came out of a church and beaten by four men with rods. Muslims? Uh, no. Hindus. I'm not even sure if they were Hindus. I have an idea who they were. But I can't tell you that either. Okay. But so he, he didn't have broken ribs, but I sent him for full physical because there was, he, it looked like he had broken ribs and internal damages. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, there is some risk, but we try to be careful about those kind of things. You take risks when you have to, and when you don't have to, you don't take risks, and then you let your guardian angels take care of the rest. So where, where are you headed for the rest of this year, or what, what's some of your next trips? Um, this is November. Hopefully, I don't have any trips planned before Christmas. Just tell them where you've been since August. That's probably the best. I don't remember where I've been Well, since I can I... tell you. In August, we were in India. Then we got back from India, and he left for Ireland. Then he got back from Ireland, left for two weeks in Africa, which included 
South Africa, Zambia, and Swaziland. Got back, headed to Poland. And uh, what am I missing in there? I know there was another. Oh, yes, then the cross-global link. And then we had our big um, international 75th anniversary in Lancaster County and then started on this trip. There was a so, Germany trip in there somewhere that I remember. Yeah, so, so that's just since August. Yeah, in the month of August or September, I did six transatlantics. Yeah, counting so, to India. In the month of August, you did uh, six. September. No, September. September. Yeah. One month, you did six yeah. transatlantic yeah. flights. And in India, we were about two and a half weeks in India. India is so large uh, that it was connected to the, the 75th celebration. Oh, Poland. I was in Poland, yeah, too, because I was in Auschwitz there about a month ago. Yeah. But they they had four separate celebrations just because India itself is so big. Oh, Philippines. And no, so, but Philippines was earlier in the year. Well, yeah. Philippines and Israel were all well before August. And then Canada. You got back from the Philippines. Canada we headed count to Canada. Yeah, we consider Canada <laughs> local. Canada's just across the border. If you don't fly across an ocean, it's local. Yeah. <laughs> is that how you figure? Yes. But, yeah, that's all been since August. So between August and November, it's been pretty steady. So in these countries that you're visiting, you're yes. you're there to strengthen the church. These are yes. BCM-planted missionary churches. Um, sometimes they are. We don't plant churches where there's already a church. We strengthen the church and funnel all our discipleship efforts and evangelism efforts into the local church that already exists. So, for instance, the United States, we have over 100 missionaries in the United States, seven camping programs here. You won't find a BCM church because we'll funnel everybody into another local church. Okay, so you're when you're over there strengthening the local church with these pastors and missionaries that are yes. there, you personally are committed to expository preaching. When I get to preach, yes. Yeah. Is, is uh, training men to preach scripture part of what BCM does to strengthen the local church? It is. It is. In fact, in India, the we have over 300 missionaries, about 300 missionaries in India. Many of those are lay people who can barely read. And the way we train them is we bring them in every year or every six months to what we call a pastor's conference. And then we bring pastors from here to teach a certain piece of theology during that period. So um, we're always on the outlook for pastors who have experience in teaching, but also in church work, who can teach at a level of someone who's semi-literate, so that when they go back and all they have is their Bible with the notes they made in their Bible, they can teach that back to the people. Uh, yeah, and just to clarify on the India, because we have over 16,000 churches, uh, there's a lot more pastors than BCM has missionaries, and most of the missionaries have a little more education, but a lot of the pastors are... Oh, the, the tribals don't, but the yeah. ones that are in the bigger areas, like Nyack, who runs the Orissa area, he, has, he's, he is educated. And what happens is that each pastor would have uh, an area, not just a church under his peruse. He would have an area under his peruse. So he would be immediately in charge of anywhere from three to seven churches where he would go around visiting the elders there. And those would also be spread out, um, radiating with other churches. And it's mainly lay leaders and elders in those other churches that manage those churches. So what he receives at the Bible conference will go to his people, which go to their people, which go to their people. And it becomes a very strong lay movement. Yeah. And the other side is the children's ministries. And uh, probably two that would be a good example of what BCM does. Um, we just finished a, it was a three-month uh, period of uh, 
uh, teacher training in Nigeria. Now, this is with the SIM International 4 million member local church. So we're working with the local churches of the SIM International. The name of that church, yes. Yeah. And uh, we trained 1,500 new teacher trainers who will then be teaching the, tra- the teaching the children's ministry leaders within their local churches. Children's Bible teachers. So rather yes. than going in and planting churches in Nigeria, BCM is training children's ministry leaders within the SIM churches, which have many, many churches, but they don't have trained children's ministry leaders. And so it's very much a partnership. Uh, one of the other examples would be Tamil Nadu, India, where there's there is no church planting with BCM. But that particular area where uh, BCM has ministry, they reach 115,000 children every week in Bible clubs and, and uh, school release classes. And so in that particular area, uh, there's a, a strong national church. So they're not doing church planting, but they're reaching 115,000 children. Hmm. And so much of it just depends on uh, in India, because there wasn't a local church in many areas, the church, church planting grew. Other yeah. areas, BCM church works planting there very is in tribal areas and strong Hindu areas mainly, and some Muslim areas. But Muslim isn't that strong in India compared to Hindu. Mm-hmm. Hindus, the the Hindus and Buddhists are the biggest, by far one of the bigger groups there. And not peaceful. The the radicals are not peaceful. Well, they kill people. And one example was Arissa. Arissa. And it was several years ago, I remember the, well, the news headlines is ongoing. And, yeah, it's several years ago, but it's rarely. Rarely a week goes by when I don't hear of someone else being killed or jailed. In by, Arisa. Uh, in not not in Arisa, in all of India. Oh, but okay. also in Arisa there are problems. Um, the Arisa situation was interesting because each state is fairly autonomous in India. And the people that were elected to leadership in Arisa were also radical Hindus. So the system of checks and balances in Arisa was removed. And then the fact that there was 2%, officially 2% Christian in Arissa, and when they began to see that the Arisan, that the Arisan Christian church was growing, they got nervous and started, uh, started the persecution. Um, unofficially now it's about 25%. The church, the size of the church, 25%? 25% of, of Arissa is now 25 to 27, and the church growth is growing great. Okay, so they started off 2%. Yeah. They persecuted the church, and it jumped up to 25%. Well, it was probably close to 15 to 18 when they started the persecution, but they didn't realize you can't persecute the Christian church into non-existence. Really? And so they there were, a couple of them did an interview with uh, the newspaper from... Southern India, I forgot the name of the city now. They did the interview and they said, you know, we started this persecution to get rid of the Christians. <laughs> and we wiped Arisa clean of Christianity. We pushed 50,000 Christians out. He said, but now we don't know what's wrong with this. We got trouble because now that they're coming back, I mean, the persecution was stopped because the federal government stepped in and curtailed the official leadership of that province. That's what stopped the persecution. They said, but now that they're coming back, there's not only 50,000 of them, there's 150,000 of them, which shows that more people are converting. And so that that was a complaint they filed with the secular press, and it came out in the newspapers. So you you can't persecute the church into non-existence. So the the church, when it was persecuted, what did you see happen in Arista? Did you see um, a, a healthy church grow, or did you see a originally a maybe a sick church become more refined and pure or both the church that we work with in Arisa is tribal 
and rural. So I can't speak to the urban areas of Arissa. But what we saw was it was it was a growing church, and that's part of what instigated the persecution, is that it was growing quickly. And the way the tribals work is when you convert, it's very seldom you just have one or two people convert. You usually have large groups of people convert. So the tribe or most uh, of the a tribe. tribe or a village. And often the village and tribe live in this the same entity. And that's why the persecution happened. They would wipe out whole villages that were known to be Christian. They weren't completely Christian. They could have been five to ten percent Muslim or Hindu there. But in their fervor to get rid of the Christians, they also destroyed a lot of the Hindu homes. Um, the, the response of the church, of course, because we were experiencing rapid church growth there, the response of the church at first, I mean, they burned all our churches. We couldn't track missionaries down for a long time. We, they could have all been dead. Um, and so church growth flatlined for approximately six months. And then we started to go back and rebuild the churches. And things started to grow again, and then we had a second wave of persecution. That that second wave is actually the one that, that destroyed August, everything in August, when the, whole... when the Swami was killed by the Maoists, um, and they blamed the Christians for it. And that second wave took everything back to zero again, and then so we rebuilt some of those churches twice. Now we rebuilt the church in a couple of places. We put a bore well in with the church, fresh water. And that has also created, in the tribal mindset, it's created a place where there's acceptance of the Christian church in a local community. Because either they didn't have a well or they had a well, but only the upper caste could use it. And so the rest of the, because most of Arisa is Dalat, which is the lowest untouchable group of, of castes. And when we came in, some of the bore wells we put were within 10, 15 feet of the burned out walls of the old church. Because we would, the burnout church was here, we'd build a right, new church right next to it, and the bore well would go anywhere we could, usually in front of the church or to the side. And one I dedicated it was to the side. I could almost touch the wall of the burnout church here and the wall of the new church, which was already full and ready to expand mm-hmm. here. Wow. And we put in that bore well and we say, you know what, this water's for everybody. You don't have to be Christian to come to take it. We as Christians put this well here for your village. You burnt our church down. You killed some of our people. But this is what you get back. And so it's created, uh, church growth is growing strong when we were there in August. We baptized at where we have the children at. We baptized 156 new believers in two hours. And they were all from one tribe, so it created a new church where they're at. <laughs> so that's the kind of church growth that we're seeing in the Orissa area. Um, all of India in, and Asia is experiencing persecution. That's fairly normal. Our other big church planting, you know, India is the biggest, you know, 16,000 churches. But the other single field for BCM where there's been major church planting as opposed to just the children's ministries is the Philippines. And it's been uh, most of it in Mindanao. And of course, Mindanao is known for the Islamic extremists, you know, Gracia and Martin Burnham being kidnapped. Um, We have almost 100 churches in Mindanao and uh, the Bible Institute, and you'll see some pictures well, it's tonight. it's a Bible camp, but we yeah, do but those kind of pastor's conferences we do there. And well. it's all tribal, but it's been exciting to see the growth of the, and, and we that's our second largest uh, missionary population outside of North America. We've got 100 missionaries in the hmm. Philippines, and they're all Philippine 
But what they're There's doing no in those right now. in the tribal well, areas like a is really, expats. yeah. So, so and what what do you call a non-creative access country? Just access country? A non-creative access country <laughs> is <laughs> an open country. A country where it's not illegal to change your faith to Christianity. So a lot of the countries it's illegal to become a believer. Most of the churches that you work with, or the countries the BCM is in, are they creative access or? Or non-creative access? They're non-creative access. Uh, of the 65 countries that we have projects going on and off and on, I would say 40 to 45 of those would be non-creative access countries. Okay. Latin America, Europe, Eastern Europe, Latin America, Europe, Europe Africa. Eastern Europe now is non-creative. It used to be creative. Parts of Asia. Some of those countries are mixed. For instance, if you go to China... And I'm not saying we have work in China, but if you go to China, it's against the law to talk to a child under the age of 18 about his faith. Hmm. That, I mean, you can go in there. There's no restriction for you going in there. There's no real restriction for changing your faith, although if you're a card-carrying communist, you're in trouble. Yeah. But if you can't legally talk to a child until they're 18 which according to Chinese law is the age, the minimum age, when someone is responsible enough to make a choice, um, that pretty much cuts your ministry way down. Your children's ministry, for sure. You've seen, you've been at BCM for, since 2005? Yes, You've seen 2006. 2006. You've right. seen countries go from uh, non-creative access to creative access? Yes. Nepal's a good example of that. They, they went, you mean creative access to non-creative access? Yes. Okay, so they went from persecution to free. Yes. Have you seen any go from free to persecution? As national policy, no. In the same way that in practice, yes. Where there there can be periods of time where it's open, fairly open for ministry, and all of a sudden something happens and changes it. It could be a it could be a disaster, political change, a terrorist event, or whatever it is that all of a sudden. It could be a war in Iraq. It could be a, a Arab Spring in Egypt. I mean, all of those political things can cause a change. Did the war in Iraq affect international missions? There's no, it's a Sharia law government now. Well, let's just say under the nasty guy we got rid of, Christians had more freedom to worship than they do under the current law. Over 90% of Christians in Iraq have been driven out of the country since the new government came in or killed. And there is no freedom now in Iraq where Christians could worship and missions could could work openly under Saddam Hussein. So that's been a sad. Christian Christian missionaries could work openly under Saddam Hussein. Yes, because he he was a secularist, so he didn't care what your religion was. I mean, he had a lot of Christian. You know, money deal. Yeah, he had he had uh, Christian you know ethnic Christians in his cabinet. Uh, We replaced him with the Sharia law, constitution, and government. And so over 90% of the very large Christian minority of Iraq has been driven out of Iraq in the last 10 years. There's an exodus of Christians from Iraq. There's an exodus of Christians from Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan legally never had any, but... Yeah, but the ones uh, that are undercover there are looking for ways out. So We have Sharia law in Afghanistan now, too. Yes, we have Sharia law. Okay, so now we've had internationally in Libya and in Egypt, we've had these... Revolts, the Arab Spring. And Arab yes. Spring. We were told how great this was going to be for the freedom of Christians and all religious groups when we got rid of these dictators. 
Um, Libya when Gaddafi was down, yeah, it, Libya it, just announced that the new government will be totally under Sharia law. I mean, it remains so what to does be that seen mean in every Christians? country. But when they go to Sharia law, that means uh, basically there is no freedom of religion. It's illegal to convert, and if you convert, it's punishable by death. That's but simple. If, if you are there, or you move in, or uh, you're already an existing Christian, they have this little special class called dimitude, right? Well, according to Sharia law, everybody in those countries was originally Muslim. So it's Muslim country. So there is no legal Christianity status under Sharia law. I mean, you look at uh, who's Pastor Yosef in uh, Iran. Yes. He's second or third generation Christian. But no, one of the was... things they tried to get him to do was denounce his faith and return to he was raised, um, he became a Muslim, at, or he became a Christian as a teenager. And yes. the, the whole case against him is that he was born a Muslim. And so in countries like um, Egypt, uh, you know, Syria, the places that had the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, where there was a strong Christian minority, and Iraq in the past, those people could remain, and Lebanon, you know, there, there was the Christian minority. Mm-hmm. Those people can remain uh, ethnically Christian or convert to to Islam. Sharia law says that no person whose ancestors were ever converted to to Islam can it's apostasy to leave the faith. So Afghanistan uh, by law they, they said it's 100% Muslim so obviously anybody who becomes a Christian in Afghanistan is considered to be an apostate. Uh, same way in uh, like a lot of these countries. In Egypt if a lot of the, the converts were former Muslims, see, that's an apostasy. If you were part of the Eastern Orthodox Church and you were ethnically part of that Christian minority, and it says on your your uh, I, carnet of identity that you are a Christian, then you, by law, are allowed to be Christian. But nobody whose ancestors were ever Muslim can ever convert because that's the Sharia law. Yeah, Sharia law says you cannot convert from Islam. It's apostasy to convert from Islam. So the religion of peace, I imagine, the penalty for converting from Islam to Christianity is $100 fine? It's a death sentence. It's a religion of peace. It's a religion of peace. You get rid of the people that disagree with you, and then everything's peaceful. Everything's peaceful. (laughs) And just to throw in their veiled freedom and freedom stand, tell a lot of this story, uh, both of what the reality is and of what has happened in the last 10 years. We don't hear about it over here, though. Yes. News media is just a, almost a total blackout. There's for plenty we don't hear about in the media. We don't hear about the war that's going on in the Congo. There's, what, 2 million people? No, 5, five million, million people, people dead in the last five years. There's 12 countries involved in that war. It's covering a space greater than the size of continental Europe. And how, how much have you heard about that war? It's Nothing. considered to be the Nothing. Third World War. It, it covers more space, has uh, more armies involved, and has had more deaths. And they're recruiting uh, then, children eight or nine years old, yeah, teaching them how to use an AK-47 and a bayonet. I mean, it's but, bad. But you don't hear about that on the news at all. No. And you can guess why that's my next book. <laughs> is it? Is it? Uh, is that a religiously motivated war? It's going on in the Congo? No. And no, that's uh, it's, money. It's a totally money. You okay. know, the, the Congo is the, the wealthiest nation uh, resources-wise on the planet, and yet it's uh, you know, second only to Somalia and Afghanistan in poverty. And it's because, and and it's the, the irony is that they are a country that for 500 years has considered itself Christian, 
just like Latin America, because it was converted by the colonialists. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, the French colonialists converted it to a legal. But again, it's just, uh, but yeah, it's it's just plain human sin, greed, it's and evil. people and inside people harvesting their natural resources and making the people pay for it. So in the Middle East, we've, we our policy of spreading democracy around the world has ended up taking two countries where Christians were free to practice their faith and turning them, Afghanistan and Iraq, into two countries under Sharia well, law. Afghanistan had no freedom. The, the two countries, uh, ironically, that uh, we changed was Pakistan and, and Iraq. Pakistan? Pakistan Iraq. had freedom I realized of, that we bombed Pakistan. No, Pakistan had freedom of faith as a British colony. And then in the 80s, when we started building the madrasas to create the Mujahideen, we put General Zia into power, and General Zia was an Islamic uh, extremist. And so... Uh, we basically gave the, the go-ahead for the, what was called the Islamicization of Pakistan, which was the implementing of the blasphemy and apostasy laws that you hear about on uh, mm. um, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Um, we, we basically said, you can do that, and also their, their nuclear uh, program that was supposed to be illegal, in return for the freedom to have Saudi Arabia put $1 billion a year to build madrasas, and America put $1 billion a year to supply arms to the graduates of the madrasas to become the Mujahideen that then later on turned into the Taliban. So it has been a long process of compromise by our country and not uh, making a stand Those two countries faith. are only two where things have sort of twisted on us and Christians have suffered because of what you know started our conversation. Have Some gone back to creative yeah. access countries. So there's a variety of reasons in different countries. It can be religion that takes it back, like uh, Sharia law. It can be the placement of a dictator that is pro some other country um, that takes it back. I mean, there's a variety of things that can take it back to a creative, a creative access environment, even though the country officially may not be a creative active country. So what is what is your what is the outlook for? Christians in Libya and Christians in Egypt. I don't know the outlook. I know that Egypt right now is experiencing, I heard estimates up to half a million people a month leaving Egypt that are Christians. Fleeing. Fleeing. Persecution. I don't know the true answer to that, and I probably won't until I get some inside help. Ethiopia, I don't have, or excuse me, Libya, I don't, I don't have any inside info on that at all. That Libya is another country where theoretically it was a hundred percent Muslim, so any church that was there was underground. Uh, now you now let's end it on a more positive note, or at least this discussion on a more positive note. You have also seen countries go from creative access, yes. both officially and in practice, mm -hmm. to non-creative access. Yes, give a, a couple examples of that. Uh, good ones. Nepal used to be a monarchy. There was no real. We would call that a creative access country. Um, there were ways to get into Nepal when it was creative access, usually through education or health or tourism. We found back in the Clinton era, a lot of money dumped there by that administration to promote tourism. And when they changed from a monarchy to a parliamentary government, what year was that? Would have been three years ago. Three, four. It was when our church was uh, built. Yes, because I was there when it was creative access. Then the 
change came, and I was there after that, and we built the church. Yeah. So basically, what was considered to be the Communist Party taking over that country from the monarchy, it was under the guise of the restructuring by the Communist Party that we gained freedom of religion. And by the way, I mentioned and it was I don't a know Hindu how to monarchy. explain that one, but that's how it worked. There. Yeah, it was a Hindu monarchy, so it was the only uh, Hindu monarchy in the planet, and only Hinduism was the legal faith. So when the Hindu monarchy fell, it was full freedom of faith, literally overnight. Wow. But we already had ministry there, but it was coming from India into Nepal. Yeah. And so uh, the churches, uh, you know, when when it fell, they had prayed and dedicated this property for a church, and there was no way to build it because the monarchy was in power. And within yeah, a year, for that church location, yeah, within you a year, build a church there. Um, the church was built. And so that was really exciting because nobody would have ever believed if you looked at every political analyst on the planet, nobody would have said that a year from now you will have total freedom to build this church. And well, what, you know what they said secular wise, it's a Hindu monarchy going down. It's a communist revolt taking over. So what are your chances that Christianity is going to be welcome yeah. in that environment? Yeah. And yeah. now it's growing unbelievably. But it's as free as it's ever been there now. And Myanmar is another example where it's a... Uh, creative access but the church is growing and the military government is allowing increasing freedom much as happened in in cuba and so the church is growing by leaps and bounds in myanmar but it's not with the help of north americans it's all you know indian believers myanmar believers um there's just no north american involvement and so the church can grow because it's not considered a connection to the west right but it's still theoretically creative access, and yet just the churches we know that are being planted left and right. So where do you go from here, Marty and Jeanette Wendell? You're pushing 40, 45 right now, and you're looking at uh, another 20, I've been 25. pushing 45 for almost a decade. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at another 25, 30 years in service with BCM, or do you have plans in the near future or far future? Well, the approach that I've taken to ministry is God always prepares you for what he has in mind. It will always be beyond what you're capable of doing. What does that mean about tomorrow? I have no idea where I'll be tomorrow. I'm with BCM because God brought me here. If he moves me, he moves me. But I do know that whatever he has in mind, it will be something that I'm not prepared to do. And, you know, we, we serve... A supernatural God. And the one thing that we have forgotten is we can't manage divine blessings. Mm -hmm. So we manage ourselves till we get to the edge of the supernatural and then we wait for the outpouring of divine blessing. And as long as you stay on that edge, it doesn't matter who you're with, you're positioned for divine blessing. But you get away from that edge and try and control everything. Humanly speaking, you miss a lot of fun. So what is it like being married to a world-renowned author? When I see her, it's great. <laughs> I was going to say, if he ever ha is married to one, I'll let you know. <laughs> What's it like being married to a world traveler? Well, we both travel quite a bit. Uh, and sometimes, you know, like this trip in India together. And uh, But I guess we're used to it because it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, we started out not traveling at all with small kids and then traveling a little. Marty traveling and me with medium-sized kids. and. We didn't really both start traveling until we had a fairly empty house. Uh, so, 
We figure that in any given month, our average is that we're three weeks out of four in the same continent, in the same house. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Three out of four is... We're either together in some other country or together at home. But three out of four weeks of the month, we are... Together. Together. So... It just seems like you travel a lot, but... We do. We do, but you just... But you're... But we're home in between, so... All right, two final questions. Um, one, what uh, how, what is it about you guys as missionaries that makes you uniquely qualified to do what you do? Training? Are you specially geared? You're specially gifted? What is it that makes you a superstar? There's nothing that uniquely qualifies us. What qualifies us is that we're obedient. And every believer should be obedient to what God has for him to do. I suppose if we're filled with a world of un non-obedient believers, and we are unique. But I believe that God has called people, everyone, to do something. And not to do it... Um, disobedience. Is disobedient. So that's why we do what we do. It's I like to, to tell people missions is like malaria. Once it's in your blood, you never get it out. It often expresses itself in certain ways and is dormant sometimes and active in others. But once it's there, it's... It's there for good. And I think it's in the heart of God. Yeah. And second question is, how can people pray for you? Pray for our travels. Pray for the ministry. Safety. Pray for safety. Pray for support for the missionaries. Um, 800, 800 missionaries and 95% of them are under-supported. Um, pray for the future of missions as we look at what the new models of missions will be. Because, again, the, the non-negotiable is the message. So how do we get the message out? Who do we use to do it? Where will God bring those people from? Um, those are questions that nobody has an answer to yet, but there will be an answer. Not a day too soon, but not a day too late. Right. Uh, pray for that. Pray for family. Um, everybody's got family needs, and we're not immune to that. We think and pray of our kids a lot and our relatives. We have aging parents on both sides of the family that make you wonder what the next steps there will be. Just to add on on to that from a communication standpoint, a great way to pray for us is to either sign up for our our ministry updates, but also uh, BCM has a Facebook page, just BCM International, and constantly the pictures and uh, prayer requests, ministry needs of the field, are being posted on that Facebook page. So if you have Facebook... Okay. Like the yeah. BCM International Facebook That latest Nepal trip page. is on there. That was great pics. We had a big hoopla in Nepal about six months ago. We were going to have a baptism, and rumor got out in the village that Christians baptized in bull's blood. So the whole village showed up to watch this baptism. And when it was just in a river, <laughs> they were all disappointed. But so I don't know if there's, there might be pictures of that baptism online too. I haven't looked for that. But yeah, yeah. The, the pictures, so the fields the themselves. I mean, I get probably 10 to 15 updates from my fields. Like while we were sitting here doing this interview, yeah. I got two updates from the Philippines about stuff going on there. So, so it's. Any websites you want to plug? JeanetteWendell.com? JeanetteWendell.com for books. Again, BCMINTL.org. Just Google BCM Say International. Say that a bit slower. BCM. BCMINTL as in international. INTL.org. Okay. But that's the mission website, and both the magazine and constant news updates are always posted on the website, so you can... 
and people can find you on Facebook, yes. like it, and get up. It's on Facebook, or there's we have another. Not much happens there, but we have a family website where those links are all there as well, and that's windowmission.org. Windowmission.org. Very good. Thanks, you guys, for taking the time. Okay. Thank you.